Well, this time I invite the kids to head out to Children's Church, ages 3 to kindergarten. Those of you who are heading out for Children's Church, feel free to make your way to the back and join Miss Chris as your teacher there, and she'll take you back to Children's Church. The rest of us may turn to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. Over the next four Sundays, we're just going to cover Matthew 1 and 2 and walk through the birth of Jesus Christ. In this Christmas season, we'll just walk through the narrative that leads to our newborn king in Matthew 1 and 2. We'll be in Matthew 1 through 17 this morning. I'll turn there myself and then I'm going to read. And you can pray for me as I go through all these names. And you may ask, how is that pronounced? Where it's pronounced however you want it. So that we can, it's the key to reading biblical names. You make it up because you don't sound like the original Hebrew anyways. Or Greek. So I'm reading out of the ESV translation. I'm going to read Matthew 1 through 17, which says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abiah. And Abiah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Asor, and Asor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You pray with me. Well, Father and God, we pray for your help this morning as we look through genealogy and and ask, what can we learn from this? What does this tell us about Jesus? And I pray, Lord, that we would learn about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And that would be our focus this morning with all that we bring in, that we would leave saying what a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus. We pray that for the kids who are over in Children's Church. That through today and through this season, we would all leave exclaiming and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our newborn King. Amen. 
over the last few years, become more popular and possible to conduct DNA and ancestry tests um, through services like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. People have gone on and found out what is in their family background and their genetic background. And weird stories have come out of that. Sometimes they aren't always good, the surprises you find in your family tree. People have found that uh, actually that wasn't my biological father, which is a strange thing to find, or find that they have ethnicity, a part of their background they didn't realize, or they weren't the ethnic background they thought they were. There are good stories as well as people have researched their family background. According to people.com, there's a family in St. Louis who wanted to adopt, and they ended up adopting a 10-year-old girl from an orphanage in China. Upon arriving home after the adoption, they were talking to another family in their church about their new daughter, and that family had also adopted a daughter from China. And one mom just kind of started talking about how they seem so similar. And you could say, well, you know, you're a white person. You just think all Chinese people are the same. But that wasn't the case. No, they have similar tendencies and and traits and characteristics. But the girls were adopted years apart from different orphanages, through different agencies and provinces, two hours apart in China. But uh, upon insistence, they ended up genetic testing both of these girls and found that they were 99.9% match to be sisters. And they happened to come together at a church in St. Louis. You never know what kind of surprising things you may find in your family tree. And while we have become, as a culture, maybe more interested because of the possibility of researching our own heritage of DNA, we look through the Bible, and these are often the parts of the Bible we skip, the long genealogies, the list of names that we can't pronounce, and we wonder why are they there. And the genealogies are there to serve a real function and a purpose in Scripture. In this cultural background, amongst the Jewish people in Israel, your family tree, your ancestry, your parentage is how you identified yourself. So we have documents like a driver's license, birth certificate, social security card, passport, these things of identification that identify yourself and prove who we are. In that culture, Your family tree is how you prove who you were. And if you were going to make a claim on a piece of land or a property and say, this belongs to me, you'd do so through your family. And say, I am the son of this person who's the son of this person, and our family has a claim to this land. If you were going to claim to be a priest and have priestly duties in Israel, you would have to prove that you're part of the priestly line. If you were going to lay claim to be a priest, you had to prove that you were a priest by your family tree, by your ancestry. And if you are going to claim to be the Messiah, you would have to prove you had the right background by your family tree. And that is why Matthew includes this right at the beginning of his gospel. Matthew's whole purpose, and when he writes this book and he wrote this letter, his whole purpose was to show that Jesus is the Christ. And I think specifically to Jewish audiences, Matthew writes to show show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. So he begins with the family tree. And he shows that Jesus has the perfect ancestry to be the Savior. That's Matthew's main point. That's our main point this morning. That Jesus has the perfect ancestry to be the Savior, the Messiah. You'll notice verse 1 refers to Jesus as the Christ. And we know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? 
That's a title given to him. The Christ means the Messiah, the Savior. When we say the Christ, that means the anointed one, the one chosen. When I played soccer at recess in elementary school, I was often anointed last to be part of the soccer team. That's where I was chosen. Jesus is anointed. He's the anointed one. He is God's chosen Messiah, the one God picked to be the Savior. And this genealogy shows he has the right background. It doesn't by itself necessarily prove he's the Messiah, but he would need to show, and Matthew would need to show, that he has the right credentials. It's part of the requirements of being the Messiah is having the right family tree. So we're going to walk through this genealogy. I'm not going to give a biography of each person. You'll be here for a while. Read Chronicles. If you want to do that, just read your whole Old Testament. If you want the commentary on Matthew 1, 1 through 17. But I'm going to pick and choose some highlights and some things that are interesting key features about this genealogy which show why Jesus has the perfect ancestry to be the Savior. First, first point, we've got four points, we're going to breeze through each of them. The first point is he is the son of promised blessing. Jesus is the son of promised blessing. Why does he have the perfect ancestry to be the Savior? Because he is the child of Abraham. There are two people that Matthew will point out specifically, Abraham and David. Matthew points out Abraham specifically because anybody who's going to be the Messiah had to have to be a child of Abraham and the promise given to him. And Jesus is the son of promised blessing. So you look at verses 1 and 2 in the genealogy. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Those people are all kind of the patriarchs of the Jewish people, of Israel. Starting with Abraham. If you know your Gospels, you know that Luke also has a genealogy that begins in his Gospel. Matthew's is slightly different. They focus on different things. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, and shows how Jesus and his bloodline goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew stops at Abraham. Why? Because he's specifically concerned with showing that Jesus is the child of Abraham and that the people of God started with a promise given to Abraham, their father. God gave a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with him, a contract, an agreement. So if we're going to look at our founding fathers in the U.S. and say, what are our founding documents? There are three of them that are our core founding documents that make us a nation. Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, Constitution of the United States. Those are the three documents that found us, that make us who we are. For the people of Israel, it was the Abrahamic covenant that founded them, that made them who they were. The promise given to Abraham, it's given in Genesis 12, where God says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you, out of you, a great people. I'll give you many offspring, will be part of this people. Your people will be blessed by God. And your people will be a blessing to the world. And anybody who aligns themselves with you, Abraham, and your people, will be blessed. And anybody who rejects you will be cursed. God made a promise to Abraham that your people will be the means by which I bless the world. And the world and all people on the earth will rise and fall depending on whether they align themselves with your people and your offspring. That is the promise given to Abraham. And any Messiah, any Savior, any King who would save God's people, because that's what the Messiah does, he saves God's people, any Savior would have to come from Abraham. Jesus, and his bloodline, his family tree, goes all the way back to Abraham. He is a child of Abraham in the promise. And not only is he a child of Abraham, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Abraham and the promise. What is the promise to Abraham? Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham, because by him are all nations blessed or cursed. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, there's a scene of worship in heaven, where saints and Elders and angels are gathered around the throne singing praises to God. And in their heavenly worship song, they sing this about Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. What does heaven sing about? That Jesus Christ, this one born to Mary, and who is the son of Joseph, this child, through him, people from every nation will be saved. That God will make one new kingdom, a people out of Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus and everybody who calls on the name of Jesus, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background, if you call on the name of Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah, you are part of the people of Abraham, the blessed people. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And everything promised to Abraham is promised to you in Jesus. So that promise that's given in Genesis 12, that you will be blessed and be a great people, that is your promise in Jesus Christ. And it's a promise given all the way back at the beginning of this genealogy. It is estimated that Abraham lived probably around 2,000 years before Christ. It took 2,000 years 
to fulfill the promise. God waited 2,000 years to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. God's patient. More patient than we are. If you're wondering, how long, O Lord, until you make all things right, until you wipe away sin, until you reconcile this world to yourself and make all things new, how long do we have to wait? And if you start to wonder, I don't know if God's going to make good on his promises, remember, the promise is given way back in Abraham, but God always fulfills his promises, no matter how long it takes. He's faithful in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Jesus is also, we find out as we look through this genealogy, the son of wicked men. Jesus comes from Abraham's line, but it is not a pristine or pure line of people. What we find as we look through this genealogy is that Jesus is the son of wicked men. He has some rotten branches in his family tree. You look at the middle section of the genealogy, which starts in verse 6 with David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abiah, Abiah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You go through those names. In fact, let's do this. We'll take just a few moments. We'll do it quickly. And we can play a fun game. Because these are all, essentially, not all of them. They're kings left out. But these are all kings of the southern kingdom of Judah or the united monarchy of Israel. So these are all kings in Israel and Judah. And we can play a game, a fun game. Good king or bad king? Now, we're at a certain point in the split, and it only focuses on the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kings of Israel, spoiler alert, all bad. All right, so we can just, they're not even listed here. All those, all bad. So we're already starting in a hole, in a deficit, when we talk about the kings of Israel. We're just focusing on the southern kingdom, the good ones, and we go through and say, okay, good king, bad king. So David will start out, good king, bad king. This is a Sunday school time, you know, your thumbs up or thumbs down. Good king. Had some trouble spots, didn't he? We're going to get to that. But overall, good king. Solomon, his son. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> He's the one that I'm kind of on the fence on. Good king, bad king. Well, built the temple. Also amassed wives and horses and property for himself he wasn't supposed to do. Had some bad spots. But I'm going to put him more maybe in the good king category. All right, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Bad king. Wicked king. Committed idolatry under him, the whole nation split. And okay, so here's where the split happens between Rehoboam and his brother, it's the sons of Solomon, and now it goes only on southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel, we're not talking about them, we're just talking about southern kingdom of Judah now. And we go on to those Judah kings. Abiah, good king, bad king. It's okay if you don't know this, I had to look all these up too, so don't worry, I'm not doing this off the top of my head. But bad king, wicked king. He walked in the sins of his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. All right, so we go to Asaph, or Asa. Good king, all right, there we go. Had a couple bad kings in a row, nice, we have a good king. Says his heart was true to the Lord all his days. Jehoshaphat, another good king. 
1 Kings 22.43 says, He walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. So we've had a couple of good kings in a row. That's fantastic. Jehoram, Joram, evil king. He married the daughter of Ahab, who was probably the most wicked king of Israel the north, and bad family. Isaiah, or Azariah, as he's known. Good king. We have to skip a few generations now, and Matthew leaves a few kings out, but we get down to Isaiah, Azariah, good king, restored Judah, made a few mistakes towards the end of his life, but overall good king. Jotham, his son, good king. Second Chronicles says he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Ahaz, what do you think? Bad king, I see the thumbs down, good. Under Ahaz, Judah was conquered or defeated by Syria. And how did he respond? This is a form of God's judgment upon him in conquering Syrians. And how did Ahaz respond to that? Scripture says, In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord and sacrificed to the gods of Syria. So under judgment, instead of saying, God help me, he said, Syrian gods help me. He went to the people who were conquering him and their gods and worshipped them. Bad king. Hezekiah. Good king. Restored temple worship, reinstituted Passover, restored the priesthood. Didn't sacrifice to other gods, but worshipped God. Manasseh, his son. Wicked king. Bad king. He did later repent and turn to God, but overall bad king. Then comes Amos, or Ammon. His reign lasted two years. Good king or bad king? Bad king. Here's how bad he was. His son, Josiah, took over for him. How old was Josiah when Josiah came into the throne? Eight years old. Eight-year-old king. Those of you who are in here who are in that age range, how would you like to be king? Josiah was king at eight years old. Why was Josiah king at eight years old? Because Amos, or Ammon, his servants killed him. So his own servants looked at the situation and said, him or an eight-year-old? They said, eight-year-old. That's how bad that king was. His own servants killed him, and then Josiah... His son was put in place. How was Josiah as a king? What do you think? You put a kid, kid, good or eight-year-old in place, how will that turn out? Actually, pretty good. He grew up, worshipped David, purged the temple of idols, found the Book of the Covenant, worship was restored, kept Passover again. And then after Josiah, uh, kind of the wheels fall off. Several kings who were conquered deported, ending with Jeconiah or Coniah or Jehoiakim as he's called. Jehoiakim was taken off into Babylon as judgment. Jeremiah 22.30 says, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. In many ways, the kings end here with Jeconiah because of all their faithlessness, wandering off, worshiping other gods, not trusting in the Lord. And God says, consider this one without kids, without a son. 
because none of his sons will sit on the throne in Judah. In a way, the kings are cut off at this point. Physically, the throne is dismantled. And Judah is left without anybody who can sit as king because of the wickedness of these men. So what does this teach us? A couple points of application from this. As we've gone through, you saw the alternating between good and bad, wickedness and righteousness. It should tell us that one generation of faithfulness does not mean the next will be faithful as well. That is a warning, it's an encouragement to you who are parents. Just because you have put your faith in the Lord and walked after him, it does not guarantee your children will also. So the encouragement is, train, disciple, raise, and pray. Because it is God's grace that will save your children, not your goodness. It's encouragement to children of Christian parents. If you grew up in the church, if you're here as a kid or a teenager, or you've just grown up in the church all your life, here's my encouragement to you. Your parents' blessing is not yours. You, as an individual, have to make a decision whether or not you will follow the Lord. And you may assume just because you've grown up and you've seen the good decisions your parents have made and you've seen their faithfulness and the way the Lord has blessed them, that you'll just automatically be grafted into that. You, individually, you young people, you'll have to make a decision for yourself. It is not your parents' decision, it is your decision. Will you follow the Lord? Here's another encouragement from this. Just because you have rotten branches in your family tree, it doesn't mean you're condemned. Have you had wicked parents? Do you look back in your family tree and are you ashamed of what you see? Have you come from what you might call bad stock or you don't want to have any association with your family because you've seen how they've gone off the rails or you don't like what you see? Here's the encouragement. You don't have to have a perfect bloodline. Jesus didn't. None of us do. If you have wickedness in your family tree, it doesn't mean you are doomed. If you have wickedness in your family tree and in your background, you're in good company. So did Jesus. God's mercy and grace is new for each generation. And commentator Matthew Henry said, Grace does not run in the blood. Neither does reigning sin. God's grace is his own, and he gives it or withholds it as he pleases. Jesus is the son of wicked men. He is also the son of surprising women. The third point here, and third distinct feature of this genealogy, is there are a few women listed, and that is unusual in Hebrew genealogies. Normally they would just list the men and the fathers. But at a few points here, women are included in Jesus' genealogy. Why? 
That's the question. Why are women included and noted here? And why these women? We see that Jesus is the son of surprising women. So let's just point out a couple of them and think about why are they included here? The first woman mentioned is Tamar. Verse 3 says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, Perez and Zerah were twins. Judah is the father of those twins by Tamar. What do we know of the story of Tamar and Judah? How were they related? Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. Judah had a son. son died. That son had married Tamar. The family did not take care of Tamar the way they should, so Tamar took matters into her own hands and dressed in a certain way, and Judah thought she was a prostitute, used her, got her pregnant, and Judah had children through his daughter-in-law. Kind of a scandalous story. And Tamar was more faithful than Judah, isn't it? Here's a second one mentioned, Rahab, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. What do we know of Rahab? Like Tamar, she was not part of ethnic tribes of Israel. She was, in fact, a Canaanite, lived in Jericho before the Israelites conquered Jericho. A couple of the scouts went into Jericho, and who did they find? Rahab, who was a prostitute. She hid the spies in her home, protected them, aligned herself with the Israelites, and was spared when Jericho was destroyed. And she became part of, though she was a Canaanite, she became part of the family of Israel because she spared them, saved them. The third woman mentioned is Ruth. Verse 5, And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. There's a whole book on Ruth. We did a sermon series on Ruth. What do we know about Ruth? faithful woman of God because she chose to be. She was a Moabite. She wasn't part of the Israelites. She was a Moabite, not part of their clan, but she converted and aligned herself, chose to stay with the Israelite people, married Boaz, who was also a faithful man, devoted herself to the people of Israel and their God. Fourth woman mentioned, isn't mentioned by name, but by the name of her husband. We know her as Bathsheba. Referenced by her husband Uriah, verse 6 says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife, wife of Uriah. What do we know about Bathsheba and Uriah? David took Bathsheba for himself after having Uriah essentially murdered. That's how she came into the family tree of Israel. David had Uriah killed, took Bathsheba for himself. She's made a part of the family line through the lust and murder of David. These four women are mentioned in the genealogy. They have something of a commonality to them. They're outsiders brought in, often through scandalous circumstances, not necessarily by their fault, but scandal surrounding them as they're brought into the family tree. And yet Matthew picks them out and highlights them as features 
in the family. Why pick these unusual stories? Because Jesus had an unusual birth. We go to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You'll notice there that Matthew is careful to note that Jesus was born of Mary. Not of David, but of Mary. Why? As we all know, Mary was a virgin. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. David was his legal adoptive father, but not his biological one. And that story was seen as scandalous by many in Israel. Oh, David's not really your dad, huh? We wonder who your dad is. Some mocked Jesus for that. We have a recording of that in John 8. John 8, Jesus is arguing with some Pharisees about who really is their parent and who really is a child of Abraham. And some Pharisees say in John 8, 41, we were not born of sexual immorality. That is a dig at Jesus. Saying we, unlike you, Jesus, weren't born of sexual immorality. They're saying Mary slept with somebody else who's not your father. Because obviously they didn't believe in the virgin birth. So somebody is your father, but it isn't Joseph. They're mocking Jesus in his birth. So what does Matthew do? He goes and highlights a number of places where there are unusual, maybe even scandalous, in the view of some, women who are key features in the line of the Messiah. Women who are outcasts, and surprising and unlikely, yet faithful to God, were not just part of Jesus' story. They were part of Israel's story and part of the family tree of the Messiah. These outcast women weren't an anomaly. They were a feature. It was part of God's plan to bring the unlikely, the despised, the mocked, and bring them in and make them part of his people. And it ought to be an encouragement to any one of us who feel like we don't belong or feel like we have scandal in our backgrounds. The encouragement is, no, you're right a part of the family tree in Jesus Christ. Others saw his own birth as a scandal. But we know this is God's plan to bring all sorts of people in to the line of the Messiah. Lastly, he is the son of the king. He is the son of promised blessing. He is the son of wicked men. He is the son of surprising women. And he is the son of the king. And this is most important in Matthew's eyes. This is the requirement that if Jesus is to be the Messiah, he must be the son of the king. Verse 6 says, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's kind of unusual in that David is the only one who's called the king. 
There are a lot of kings in this family tree, in this genealogy, but David's the only one who's specified as the king. Why? Because David is the one who received the kingly promise that on your throne will be a king who sits forever, that your throne will be established forever. In 2 Samuel 7, David receives a promise from God which says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there would be a son of David who would be of the line of David, who would sit on the throne of David forever, and he would save Israel as the great king. A throne established forever means the nation lasts forever. I mean, the nation's in power forever. It means a throne that can't be touched or dismantled or destroyed, but a throne that sits in rule and power over all forever. That is the promise given to David. And anybody who's going to be the Messiah must have a legal claim to the throne of David. Of course, the problem is that throne was dismantled and destroyed through the wickedness of the kings. Israel watched its kingdom rise and fall without any messianic king. You see this in in the way the genealogy is even broken down. There are three distinct phases of this genealogy, these three distinct sections. Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So you see the way Matthew breaks it up? From Abraham to David, the kingdom is established. From David to Jeconiah, the kingdom is destroyed. And from Jeconiah to Jesus, the kingdom is only a hope. The rise and fall of the kingdom, the rise and fall of the throne, so that by the time you get to Jesus, it's only a hope, it's a promise, it's a prayer that a king would sit on that throne. The house had burnt down. The family tree chopped and laid low to a stump. But there was a little branch that grew out of that stump who would be the hope, be one to sit on that throne forever. And I do think, I know, Matthew wants to convince us that Jesus is that branch who will grow out of the stump that was laid low. And here's, uh, I want you conspiracy theorists to put your hat on, right? This is conspiracy time. If you're into conspiracy theories and codes, this section's for you because I think there's actually a code in the genealogy. You don't hear me talk like this very often. It's an unusual feature, but I think it's there in Scripture. Some of you have heard of what is known as gematria. What that is is a practice of ancient rabbis where they would assign a number system to Hebrew letters. So different Hebrew letters would have a numeric value. If we were to do this in English, we might say A has the value of 1 and B has the value of 2, and so on. And you would describe, you know, like Scrabble, (laughs) numbers to letters. And and we have documentation of ancient Jewish rabbis doing this. I bring that up because the number assigned to David is 14. D, or the equivalent in Hebrew, has a value of four. 
V, the Hebrew equivalent, has a value of 6. And David's name in Hebrew is DVD, not the disc you watch movies on, but David, 464 equals 14. You'll notice there's genealogy that Matthew skips all sorts of names, all sorts of people. Why? He just wants to set it up nicely. 14, 14, 14. As he says in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, again... All sorts of names are skipped. That's not the complete genealogy, but Matthew edits people out and he puts in these names to get 14 generations. Why? Because he's screaming at us, 14, 14, 14, David, 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 Jesus is David. He's the new David. He's the new king. He has set up the whole genealogy to communicate to us that Jesus Christ is the king. Do you remember, some of you watched Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, that movie specifically? There's a scene where Aragorn, the leader of men, has to go recruit a ghost army. Anybody with me on that? It's nerd talk time. And, and what kind of finally proves that he is the king who he says he is? He holds up the restored sword of the humans, of the human kings. And that sword that has been reforged, that has been uh, reformed and is now perfect and now sits in, in his hand, he holds it up and that proves that he is the true king. That's what this genealogy is doing saying, he is the one who is the true king. <laughs> Last week, the royal family visited an NBA game. And after the game, Celtics head coach, who was a devout Catholic, was interviewed and asked what he thought about the royal family being at the game. He responded with a question, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph? Pretty quiet from the reporter. The reporter clarified, the prince and princess of Wales. And he responded, no, I'm only familiar with one royal family. <laughs> Classic stuff. Love that Celtics coach. In his mind, there's one royal family. Jesus, the king, he is the king who sits on the throne forever. He is God's anointed Messiah and king. And as king... What does Jesus do? He's got the claim for the throne. He's the promised son of Abraham. He is the one who will restore the fortunes of Israel and the people forever. What will Jesus do as king? What did he do? Did he go into the temple? Did he go into the royal palace? sit on the throne and let people serve him? Did he come in power and dominance and lead Israel to conquer all the other nations and set up his kingdom forever? Did Jesus use all of his title, his pomp, circumstance to bring all glory to himself and make everybody bow down before him while he was on earth. What did Jesus do as king? How did he use his royalty? He was like a man without a home. 
He ministered to outcasts. He served others instead of being served. He took off his robes and wore the form and the clothes of a slave and washed his disciples' feet. He argued and debated with those who thought they knew better. He was mocked. He was abandoned. He was beaten, tortured, and hanged as a king. Willingly. That's what Jesus did with all of his royalty. He intentionally got himself crucified. Why? Because he didn't want to be king alone. He was also the Messiah. He was our Savior. And his goal wasn't just to rule as king, but to make a kingdom. And not just any earthly kingdom, but a perfected kingdom with perfect people to rule with him. Because he loved you and loved us and wanted us to be with him in his kingdom. He died for our sins as king, washed us clean, made us right with him and gave us life forever so that we could have access to the throne, his throne, forever with him. It's the only way to make an eternal kingdom. To make a perfect kingdom is to make perfect and eternal people who will live with him forever. And he did this through the cross, though he was the rightful king. the king of wicked people the king of surprising people the king of the promise the king of kings Jesus Christ would you pray with me our father and God we're thankful for the king we have in Jesus Christ that out of a broken and a family line in shambles with no hope you raise forth uh, the true king who saves us from all of our hopelessness and all of our despair and all of our sin and brokenness, Lord, you come and sent your Son and through him have restored us, sanctified us, washed us clean, and made us children of Abraham, children of the King. And we do look forward to life in the kingdom forever with our King Jesus Christ. Amen.